0: Resurrection Day, kids. Well, I am a child who grew up in the 70s in high school and junior high in the 80s, and it was 1980, May, and the opening weekend of the Empire Strikes Back. Me and three friends have been waiting rabidly for this to come out ever since the first blockbuster, Star Wars. So we went out to opening Saturday, and it was all that we hoped it would be. I mean... Luke Skywalker and Han Solo riding around on these crazy creatures that look like a cross between a, a giant kangaroo and a llama, with you know tusks, called the taunta on this frozen tundra place. And then there's this huge battle because the Empire does strike back. They come in these these crazy contraptions, that basically look like big robot. Um, Elephants, you know, with laser beams for tusks. It's called an AT-AT, which means all-terrain armored uh, transport, if if you want to know. I do. And as the rebels spirit their way off, Leah and Han Solo to go hang out with a clandestine friend named Lando Calrissian. Luke goes and seeks out the master Jedi, Yoda, who he's never met. He finds the swamp planet of Dagobah and searches for Yoda. And he's a little different than what Luke thought he would look like. He's diminutive. He's got big ears. He's green. And he speaks really weird. Right? I mean, parents try this, you know, like, uh, hmm, laundry you have not cleaned today. Electronics you shall not have. And Luke wonders if this, you know, this really is the master he's been searching for. But what happens is, you know, his size is not the power that he possesses and so Luke submits himself to you know the training under this Jedi Master but suddenly has a vision that his friends Han Solo and Leia are gonna suffer they're gonna suffer under the hands of the evil Empire they're gonna suffer under the hands of the evil Darth Vader and so he spirits himself off across the galaxy against the wishes of his master Yoda and it ends up in an epic uh, lightsaber battle between him and Darth Vader. But here's where the surprise ending comes. And this is what the strange thing that happens. As they're fighting mortal en- enemies, Darth Vader reveals that he is indeed Luke's father. What? He's shocked. We are shocked. And as they're fighting and Luke is saying, no, you're lying. And we're saying, no, you're lying. But it becomes more and more evident that this is true. Even as Luke's hand is cut off, loses his lightsaber, and he is defenseless, Darth Vader bids him to come over to the dark side. And we will rule the galaxy. Luke slips away down a ventilation shaft and is spirited away by the Millennium Falcon only to have his hand restored. mechanical hand but he is now haunted by this new reality my mortal enemy is my father and we're stuck with this reality also for three more years till the next sequel comes out what am I to do with this this has rocked my Star Wars world well today as we look into the Gospel of Mark, and if you have your Bibles, you may want to open up to Mark chapter 16. His account of the resurrection, we find a surprise ending as well. And it might not be what we think it should be. But as we get closer, we find that Mark beckons us to actually a greater faith and to turn towards the light of the resurrected Christ. So before we start, would you allow me to pray for us? And then we'll get into Luke 16. So Lord Jesus, this is your word. This is a record of your resurrection and you have something to say to us. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might respond in spirit and in truth. And we might respond to the life that you give in your resurrection. So I thank you that you have risen. I thank you for your word. Mm -hmm. Say to us, Lord, what we need to hear. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, for the last two weeks, we've kind of ramped up to this Sunday. We've been in the Gospel of Mark, and we've looked at Jesus as the King. And we looked in Mark Chapter 8, Jesus reveals Himself as the Messiah, as the Christ, as God's promised King. But He reveals Himself as a different kind of King. Not one who's come to kick out the Romans and to remove Gentile tyranny and restore the lost kingdom of David. But one who will suffer. One who will be rejected. One who will be killed. But on the third day, rise from the dead. Jesus will say this four times before we come to our episode today in chapter 16. Last week, we were looking at the king's procession as Jesus rode into Jerusalem a week before his death and resurrection. As he rode in on a Small colt of a donkey to fulfill Zechariah 9.9 and for to fulfill the word of God in in, uh, Psalm 118 where the people cried out, Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. Again, they were looking for a military savior. Jesus has come to be a different kind of savior, a different kind of king. And in a week's time, He who was celebrated, He who was, people were crying out, Hosanna to, a lot of things have changed. He celebrates the Passover with His disciples. And He gives it new meaning. He says, this is the new covenant that is in My blood. And by the way, if you read all the accounts of the Last Supper with his disciples, there's no Passover Lamb that they eat. Think about that. The one who presides over the Passover is that Passover Lamb. But during that time, he's going to be tricked. Be, he's going to predict his betrayal. He's going to predict that he will be denied he's going to predict that he will be deserted and what happens next is that as he's in the garden he is betrayed by judas he's deserted by all of his disciples and denied by peter he's arrested unjustly tried, rejected by the crowd, saying, crucify him, crucify him, and that comes to pass as he is put upon a Roman cross. He dies. The veil in the temple of the Holy of Holies is rent from top to bottom. He is taken down, wrapped in a linen cloth, put in a tomb which is closed by a huge stone. And this is where we pick up the story. So listen. Listen to these first eight verses of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Who will roll the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man dressed in white, a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What? That's it? That's the end? No, no, no. No Mary running and telling the disciples? No her encountering Jesus in the garden? No Peter Experiencing Jesus, or the disciples, or the 500 witnesses? What is this? What is wrong? What kind of ending is this? It's like, a, it's like a dissonant song. It's like a song with a dissonant chord at the end of it, and you're waiting for it to be resolved. And it's like, eh, I feel this tension. Because I know there's more to the story. And if you feel that way, you're in good company. In fact, some folks really tried to smooth things out. If you look in your Bible, you probably have verses 9 through 20, and it kind of cleans up the story. But here's the problem. That in all of the earliest manuscripts of this passage, it's not included. There's no New Testament scholar that says, this was Mark's writing. It was somebody who was trying to clean up this mess, who's trying to bring clarity, trying to bring, you know, resolution to this dissonance. And by the way, I want to tell you, this, because this is in your, uh, you you, you probably have a note in there saying, this is not included in the early manuscripts, this not on. make us feel suspicious about our scriptures. In fact, it ought to make us feel more confident. Number one, because there are of all the ancient manuscripts that are out there. There are no, there are no ancient documents that have as many ancient, uh, attestations to the scriptures. In the New Testament, there are over 20,000, uh, manuscripts of the early scriptures. So we can be confident as we compare to each other that You know, this is God's word. Also, no other book goes under scrutiny like the scriptures do, like the Bible does. That might be so, but let's get back to our story. What happened? Did, did Mark have writer's block? Did he not have the details? Did he not have the information? Did this somehow get cut off or he ran out of ink in his pen? What happened? I'm going to ask you to suspend your judgment here for a second. Because I think John Mark is God's mystery writer. And he has a purpose for ending it like he does this. And he he wants to unpack things. But we're going to go through this passage. And uh, there, there are some unlikely things here. And the first thing, in Mark's account, there are unlikely witnesses they are unlikely witnesses. Let's just look at verse 1 and 2 again. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body very early on the first day of the week. Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. These same women are mentioned three times in the in the space of eight verses, go up to chapter 15, and we find out that these same women are witnesses of Jesus' crucifixion and his death. We skip on down to verse chapter 15, verse 47, we find out that they're witnesses of Jesus' entombment and burial. And now here in this part of, the, of chapter 16, now they're going to the tomb to find Jesus' dead body, to anoint it, to anoint his body, Because Not because they're trying to mummify it. They're trying to delay some of the smell that comes from a a decaying body. But here's the thing. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, Mark, he writes in a style that is broad and swift and oftentimes excludes details. But in this period of eight verses, he talks about these women three times. During these three events. You see, what Mark is indicating is, this is actually history. This actually happened. These people at this place, at this time, they're the witnesses. And by the way, when Mark wrote this, these women were probably still alive. Go and talk to them. Go find out what they experienced. These three women were there. This is not a legend I'm making up. This is history. I've slowed down, I've focused on this because I want you to know who was there. I want you to know what happened. But here's the other thing, and here's what makes these makes these women unlikely witnesses. They were women. And I don't say that in a demeaning way from our standpoint, because to us, that doesn't matter. But for the first century, huh? having the first witnesses to to a, an earth-changing account or a history-changing account, that was probably detrimental. You see, the Jews, they didn't value a woman's testimony in court. In fact, Jewish men would wake up praising God and blessing Him that He did not make Him a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. That's how they felt about women and their testimony. Greeks oftentimes viewed women's testimony as hysterical not making sense a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus who was a major enemy of Christianity this was one of his major problems with the account of the resurrection that women were the first people there to account for what happened and even the disciples when you read the account in the other gospels when they go tell them they're kind of going I don't get it. I don't believe you. But by the way, notice that there are no men at the tomb. They're all scared. They're all hiding in cowardice. This is not to disparage women. In fact, I think Mark is elevating their courage, their loyalty, and whatever faith they have. At this point, but here's the here's the main point, right? If you're gonna try and make up a legend that's believable, if you're trying to put forth information, you want people to to take into account. In the first century, you don't make your first witnesses women. That doesn't make sense if you're trying to put forth something that should they should believe. But it's in all four gospels, not because it's good marketing but because it's true. Because it's true. The first witnesses were women. And Mark is basically saying, I'm not making this up. This is what happened. And it's just like God to use what this world oftentimes views as weak and shameful to shame that which is wise and what is perceived as powerful. Well, number two, Mark's account has an undisputed, unexpected discovery look at verse 3 through 5 and they asked each other who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb and when they looked up they saw that the stone which was very large had been rolled away and they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in white, a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed again these women had been witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus verified by a a centurion in verse, uh, 1545, a man who'd seen many a man die, knew when a person was dead, and had seen his entombment in verse uh, 47 of chapter 15. And now they're here to take care of unfinished business. Jesus' body, who is dead, they're gonna care for it. They're gonna pour oil on him. Because they couldn't complete it on the day he was executed because of the Sabbath. So, they're showing up just after sunrise. They're on their way, but they realize there's a problem. There's an obstacle. This huge stone. I mean, a stone so big that it probably took two grown men to move it, or maybe one with a a fulcrum or something of that nature, but they didn't come prepared To move this stone. But nor were they prepared to see what they encountered. The stone's been rolled away. It's not in the way anymore. What do we make of this? What's going on here? It's like like coming home to your house and seeing your front door ajar. And you're kind of going, what is going on inside of there? And now they've got a choice to make. Do they go into that tomb? What are they going to find in there? And by the way, I think we oftentimes think of the tomb as this big, wide, open gap door. It's not. Tombs in those times were made as low as two feet high. You have to stoop down to get into them. You have no idea what's on the other side of that. And that these women, they decide to go in there. They stoop in. And there's a man dressed in white! What were you expecting? You're expecting to experience the dead body of Jesus. But there's this man dressed in white there. I don't know about you, but I'm 6'4". About 250 pounds, two. 55 on another day? I can be startled. Our uh, children's church director, Polly Schwartz, was here one afternoon, and I didn't know she was in the building. And I walked in, and whoa! She scared the bejeebies out of me. I'm just telling you, these women were scared. They were alarmed. They did not expect to find this man in here, they expected to find Jesus dead body but something more is going on here because mark's account has an unexpected announcement look at verses six and seven do not be alarmed he said you are looking for jesus in the nazarene who was crucified who is risen he's not here see the place where they laid him but go tell his disciples and peter he is going ahead of you into galilee and there you will see him Just as he told you. Well, it turns out that this man is actually not just some guy dressed in white. He's an angel. How do I know that? Well, Jesus himself, who came from heaven, who was transfigured in chapter 9, verse 3, was also dressed in white, glowing. And if you were listening earlier to the account that Kelly read from Matthew, Chapter 3, I mean, chapter 28, verse 3, and Luke, chapter 24, verse 4. So these angels, they, their countenance was like lightning, their raiment was white as snow. They were glowing, per se. Mark is the king of understatement. But he says to them, Do not be alarmed. Now, aside from the fact that he was probably glowing in a dark place, The fact is, they realized that this man was not just anybody. He was an angel from on high. And again, if you are familiar with the Bible, angels often say, fear not. Because you're never sure what an angel, a messenger from God is going to bring. Is it going to be curse and judgment? Because all of us are guilty of something. Or is it going to be good news? And blessing. And God in his kindness, in his grace, and his wisdom, it's the latter. He's placed this angel here to help these women understand what's happening. You see, because an empty tomb in itself doesn't show you that Jesus has risen from the dead. It just shows you that there's an empty tomb with no body. Someone could have stolen it. The angel helps them understand and identify who they're looking for. Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. Yeah, you got the right person. And you're right about what happened to him. You got the right tomb. But it's not what you expect. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? The place where they laid him? (laughs) He's gone. He's risen. He's gotten up. But there's more here. Look at verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of them, ahead of you, into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. You'll see him risen, alive, just as he told you. You see the point is that Jesus has been saying this all along to his disciples. <laughs> Just a review real quickly. Mark eight thirty one. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after that after three days rise again. Mark nine nine. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone that they what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Mark ten thirty-three and 34. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered up over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And Mark fourteen twenty-seven and 28. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus has been telling them this is what's going to happen all along. You see the specificity of his word. Even here right now, he says, Hey, I'll, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. What we see here is a failure of the disciples to take Jesus at his word. Now, understandably, they're despondent. They're upset. They saw Jesus, their master, be crucified. But something is going on here much more than what we see. It's it's restoration. It's restoration because the disciples failed. You disciples who scattered, you failed me in the moment of my arrest. You deserted me. You're in hiding right now. But I've risen and I want you back and I'm going before you into Galilee. And Peter, you specifically, notice it's the disciples and Peter, the one who said, I will go to the very death of you, Jesus, even if all fall away. You who denied me before a servant girl. And at the very end, you called down curses upon yourself. Saying, I never knew the man. I want you back. You failed in your own strength. But I'm alive. And I go before you in Galilee. See, one of the major themes of Mark is actually discipleship failure. And at the moment of their greatest failure, when Jesus had his greatest need, they deserted him. They denied him. But instead of words of condemnation, saying you're faithless, you're self-centered, you're cowards, Jesus says, with words of hope, words of grace, words of restoration. I'm alive. I've conquered your failure, your sin. I've conquered death itself. And you need no longer fear. And I go before you. And I want you back. I don't know about you, but I find myself identifying with these disciples. And maybe you do too. Because maybe you had been following Jesus. But somewhere along the way you failed. You dropped the ball. You'd gone too far. I want to tell you this. Jesus went to the cross knowing that His disciples would fail. And he went to the cross knowing that you would fail as well. That's why he went to the cross. Because there is none that is righteous. As Psalm 14.1 talks about at the end of the passage. As Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you feel like a failure today, You may be worse than you think. But you are more loved than you ever know as well. And I know, I know out of personal experience, I'm confronted with my own failures and shortcomings every day. But your failure or my failure is not beyond God's grace, God's love. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there is still hope. The apostle John would write in his, his epistle, chapter one, verse nine, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all righteousness. Not because we deserve it, but because he is gracious and he is faithful, and he has completed God's justice, and we can have forgiveness. Maybe today you need to hear him say, I'm alive. And I have gone before you on the cross, and I want you back. I don't know where you're at, but you do, and Jesus does. Maybe today is the day where you need to return and have a resurrection of your own, in your own faith, in the resurrected Christ. But still, we still come to the fact here at the end of this account that it has an unexpected ending. Again, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why again does this gospel end like this? John Mark had to know that Mary would encounter Jesus, that she would go and tell Peter. In fact, John Mark was Peter's close personal secretary. Peter was a spiritual father to him. He had to know the encounter that Peter had with the risen Christ. How he was restored on the beach in Galilee. He had to know that. And he had to know that Jesus had appeared to the Apostle Paul as well. As he went on with him on his first missionary journey. By the way, that was a place where John Mark had his own personal failure. As at the town of Perga, he packed up and went back because he couldn't handle the adversity that he was experiencing. He failed. Why though? Discipleship failure? In order that we might not put our hope in the disciples. In order that we might understand that Jesus does not come to us. In order that we might have a self-help salvation. Jesus doesn't come to help you save yourself. Jesus comes because we needed to be saved from ourselves. And it shows us here plainly in His Word. He had to come, be crucified, die in our place. And then be risen from the dead. he might pay our penalty. Then turn around and give us the life that we do not have in ourselves. See, John Mark is not just a historian. He's trying to get into us, into our hearts. He's trying to provoke us. He's trying to do something in us. He lays out the story. He tells us what happens. He told us what Jesus said, but now he puts the onus on us. How are you going to respond to what Jesus said and did? Do you believe he is risen from the dead? So we know the rest of the story. How Jesus appears to his disciples and to Mary and the 500 witnesses. We know that these people who are cowards are turned into conquerors. We know that Jesus Christ has changed history more than any other individual who has ever walked this earth. We know that there were multiple Messiahs before Jesus who showed up, said, I'm the Messiah. And their movement ended when they died. What is different about Jesus? The resurrection. Because He lived, and He still lives. And let me say, if you have questions about this, I've got some great resources I'd love to point you to because this is about getting to the truth. In fact, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're the most to be pitied of all people. But his point was, the resurrection did happen and that makes all the difference in the world. So if it did happen, What is your response? The end of the story, folks, be written in you, be written in me. How will we respond to the resurrection? And for over 2,000 years, God has been writing His ending in each one of our stories. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, I know a few of your stories. That doesn't mean that you're not still living with challenge, that you have to have faith every day. That doesn't mean that faith, that life is just rosy. But some of you have been set free from addiction. Some have been set free from guilt. Some have been set free from failure, from worry. Set free from yourself. That's one of the major things Jesus came to set us free from. But free from death and know that we have an eternity with Him. The end of the story will be written in you. That's why Mark writes in such a terse way. Will you take Jesus at His word? And if you allow me to kind of switch the rules here, I'm going to end with a quote from another gospel, but the words of Jesus nonetheless. Who would say in John 11:25 that I am the resurrection and the life? And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Will you let Jesus write His surprise ending in you? Let me pray and then we'll invite the worship team up to close us. And if you're someone who wants to respond today, I, I just want to pray for you. If you're someone who's saying, Lord, I've turned my back on you. I failed you. Lord Jesus, I I take you at your word. for You've said that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful. You are just to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, would you help me repent and turn my heart back to you? Renew my faith in you. Renew my life in You. Help me to walk in You. Knowing that I will fail. But knowing, Lord, that You have come and have conquered my sin. And that You're committed to making me more like You. So come, Lord Jesus, do Your work in me. And maybe You're the person who needs to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the very first time. If you just pray along with me, Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming to seek and save the lost. That's me. I know I've lived a sinful life. I know I do not meet God's standard. But you died in my place. Took upon yourself the justice that I deserved, And I take you at your word. It says, if any man believes in me, should not perish and have eternal life. So Jesus, come into my heart. I put my faith in you and what you've done in dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Come and breathe your new life in me. For the rest of us, Lord Jesus, would you give us grace to let your resurrection power live within us. The power of your Holy Spirit, knowing that we are more than conquerors, and even though we will die, unless you come back, yet we shall live. We shall rise. And we have a glorious future. We shall never die because of you. So come and live your life innocent through us, we pray. Because we have been crucified with you. We are no longer, no longer we who live it. You live in us. In the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in you, Lord Jesus. The Son of God, who loved us and delivered himself up for us. Come, live your life through us. Through your resurrection power. And on this resurrection day. And it is in your name I pray these things. Amen. Let's stand as we respond.